Good day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome back for Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia. Twista went on hiatus as I focused my energy on launching my new podcast, The Next Billion Seconds. But with that up and running, we're bringing focus back onto Australia's now thriving startup ecosystem. It's been a long and interesting road from our first podcast nearly four years ago. And in that time, we've seen huge gains in both the diversity and the maturity of Australia's startups. How can we build on these tremendous gains? What can we do today to make the Australian startup ecosystem better tomorrow? We'll be asking that question in many different ways to many different guests across Series 6, and we're hoping we'll learn what it will take for Australia to go from good to great. To kick things off, we're talking to someone who knows what it takes, the best-known angel investor there is, Mr. Jason Calacanis. So we're back, kids. Strap yourselves down and get ready for the ride of your life on Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by MYOB. It's more than online accounting. It's the start of your success. Learn more at myob.com. Twista is also sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, creating the entrepreneurs of the future. Find your future at uts.edu.au. podcast could be said to have a patron saint. He's in the studio with us today. Four years ago, my old friend Jason Calacanis reached out to me, asked me if I'd be interested in creating an Australian version of his podcast this week in startups. Give it a go, he suggested. And I did. Turns out I love podcasting and it's become a big part of my life. The timing wasn't bad either. Twista emerged at exactly the moment the startup community in Australia reached its own inflection point and the innovation nation became a thing. But we're not going to talk about this podcast. We're going to talk about a journey a quarter century in the making from Brooklyn to Silicon Valley to Sydney, a journey that has put Jason in the center of the global startup community. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome our first guest for Series 6, Jason Calacanis. It is a pleasure and surreal to be here, my friend. So I am one of the folks who know you, if not from all the way back, but from far enough back. So it's 1995. I'm doing what I call the VRML World Tour, right? Going around to all of these cities and showing off VRML and meeting all the people in all the key cities who are doing internet work. And as soon as I got to New York... I met you. (laughs) Well, you were just, you were there. You were omnipresent. Yeah. So how did that start? How did Silicon Alley Reporter start for you? Um, Well, thanks for having me to start. And uh, I actually don't remember when we met. I apologize because my memory is going in my old age. But (laughs) when I was, uh, I grew up in Brooklyn and I had no money. I was like lower middle class. And I used to take the train into Manhattan and I was obsessed with, the concept of power 
and money because I had neither of those two things. This is what I've like realized, you know, decades later, you try to figure out your own narrative. Like what drove me? Because I was so driven. But it was also right, just right there across the East River too. It was, yeah. And, and, you know, Brooklyn was a world away back then. In fact, if you would go to a club in Manhattan and you were from Brooklyn, we would try to go to one of Ian Schrager's clubs, the Limelight, the Roxy, Mars, Tunnel. And you would hand them your ID and they would look at your driver's license. They hand it back to you and say, no B&T, no bridge and tunnel. So Brooklyn was not cool back then. It was the opposite. And I said, I'm going to get over that bridge and I'm going to live in Manhattan because that's what your dream was. Where I grew up was where Saturday Night, Saturday Night Fever was filmed, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. It's literally the last train stop. And for some dopey reason, I was obsessed with magazines and people getting on the cover of magazines because mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out, like, what did it take to be on the cover of Spy Magazine or Esquire or New York Magazine, all these startup those, and those were the startups of the days, magazines and zines. And then I had this like weird epiphany when I was like down on St. Mark's Place and like looking at magazines. And if I saw a magazine in the garbage, I'd pick it up and like just go through it. And I was obsessed with the mastheads. Mm-hmm. And I look at the masthead, I'd say, who are all these people? Like there's a hundred people working on this magazine. What do they all do? And what are these titles? But I would always go to the top and I'd say, who's the publisher, the editor-in-chief? And I said, wow. That's the person who picks who's on the cover of the magazine. That's true power. If you get to anoint the person and put them, I, I, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but and I thought Jan Wenner and Graydon Carter, uh, who was at Spy Magazine and then Vanity Fair. Anna Wintour. Anna Wintour, all these people, I thought, that's who I want to be. Right. I want to be that powerful. David Hershkowitz from Paper, et cetera. And so I wound up meeting all those heroes, but I just decided I would start a magazine, and it was called Silicon Alley Reporter, and... It was a 16-page photocopy. When I say a 16-page photocopy, I went to the photocopy store and I printed it and put a staple in the middle. I have held copies of this in my hand. You are not lying. And uh, I would hand it out to people and say, I have a magazine. And I'd show it to them and they'd look at it and they'd look at me. I think they felt pity on me, but (laughs) more than once people said, this isn't a magazine. You know, it's like a newsletter. It's not really a magazine. I said, no, it's a magazine because you can always tell a magazine because it has a big picture on the cover. I put a big picture on the cover. Newsletters don't. And that's the difference. And uh, anyway, talk about good timing. It was 1995 and the internet hit and, you know, there were maybe 100 people or 200 people who knew what the internet was Mm -hmm. in New York who weren't working out of college. And so that started my journey. The magazine, by the time I got to the fourth issue, was making $10,000, $20,000 a month in revenue, which in 1995 was pretty good considering people made $600 a week. Uh, So I could afford to hire a couple people. And I sold the ads myself. I wrote the copy. I took the photos. And I did the design. So really, the masthead was Jason. Oh, and a couple of other folks. Well, that was the joke. We put on the masthead, editor, publisher, and delivery boy. Because at some point, I ordered like 5,000 copies. And I couldn't get them to... I didn't know where... I didn't have them on newsstands. So I didn't know how newsstands worked yet. I figured that out around the sixth or seventh issue. So I put them on luggage carts. And I would walk around Manhattan. I'd drop them off at Razorfish. I'd drop them off at Site Specific. I'd drop them off at iVillage, DoubleClick. Well, Acme Ventures, which later became Flatiron Ventures. So I would just drop off 50 copies and say, can I put this in your lobby? And people would be like, sure. And then they'd be like, and then I'd say, would you like to buy an ad? And then I'd say, can I write a story about you? So it was like, I, I was like a hat trick. I'd go in there, I'd get all three things done. But it, it, was, um, it was an interesting precursor because I would sit there interviewing people. And more than once, I said to myself, I'm smarter than that person. 
and they just raised this venture capital thing. And, you know, I, I had in my mind that I was probably more talented and smarter than most of the people I was interviewing as a journalist. And at a certain point after five, six, seven years of it, I was like, oh, wait a second, I have a startup that's making $11.6 million this year. That was the peak number wow. for Silicon Valley Reporter. And right. This is the 90s numbers. Like, this would be the equivalent of making 30 or 40 So this is sort of like 99-ish around around peak. We peaked at 11.6 million, and I think we had 80 employees in an office at the peak. And so it was pretty big business. And I had grown it off my credit card. So I was like, wait a second. These dot-com businesses are making 2 or $3 million a year. And going public with 10 or 20, I could go public. And actually, people started talking to me about that kind of subject, as crazy as it was back then. So it it was an interesting way to get power and become famous and get money, and we're, all the thing, all the check boxes that I, a young Jason wanted, because, you know, I was a nobody, uh, and I didn't go to Brown or Harvard or NYU. I went to school at night at Fordham, and I wasn't a developer. I had no credentials, but I said I want to be the most important person in New York. So how do I get going on that? And sure enough, at the peak, I had a New Yorker feature written about me, and I was on Charlie Rose, which for me, being on the cover of the business section of the New York Times, being in the New Yorker, and being on Charlie Rose. Those were the three or four checkboxes I wanted. Yeah. Uh, and then all came crashing down. <laughs> hot, hot. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was pretty surreal. Like, you know, I had been interviewed for a book, and it was going to be like some book called like Visionaries or something, and how these young people change the world. And what people don't remember is back then young people were being lauded as yeah. just incredible geniuses. If you knew six months of HTML... You were a genius, and people would give you millions of dollars. It was quite surreal. And so when it all came apart, that book got renamed Digital Hustlers. <laughs> and they basically <laughs> framed it as we were all a fraud. And everybody went to you know, Thailand to go on yoga retreats and kind of lick their wounds. And I was like, I don't know if I can curse on this podcast, but I was like, F this. I am going to get back to work. And the funny thing was two of my employees, Shenny Jardin, and Rafat Ali had left and started working on blogs, Shenny Boing Boing, and Rafat on paid content. And I had said to Rafat, because I found out when he was working for me and he was doing this paid content thing, he's like, um, hey, boss, I heard you found out about the thing. Are you going to fire me? Because I'm moonlighting. And I said, listen, kid, let me explain something to you. Blogs are stupid. You are not a good writer. You need an editor. You're not good at picking a story. You're not good at editing the story. you got no experience. And for you to write and just publish it on the internet is a disaster. Blogs will never amount to anything. And he said, but, but, but. And I was like, don't but me, kid. And then I was like, I read an article after he left and after the Silicon Valley Reporter collapsed that he was making $5,000 a month in ads. I was like, well, I'm paying this kid 30 and now he's making 60 and he's working from home in his underwear. And then I heard through the back channels that the Boing Boing folks were making like 20 grand or 30 grand a month. Well, and that's what John Patel was selling those ads, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, John Patel from Federal Music was on the ads famously. And like, these guys were making like 5 or 10K each a month. And I was like, wait a second. I was paying Shenny like 40 or 50 grand and she was like my top paid person. I was like, okay, hold on a second. There's something going on here. And so I met with Nick Denton from Gawker, and I heard his sort of rap on blogs. And I was like, I'm going to just do business-to-business blogs. It's so obvious that this is going to work. And I stole Peter Rojas from Gizmodo uh, to start Engadget. And I got my partner, Brian Alvey, who was my designer and childhood friend, to do 
uh, Weblogs Inc. with me, and we sold it to AOL 18 months after we had started it for 30 million bucks. So I went from being negative 10, 20,000 in my bank account to being a millionaire. Well, and I remember when you and I had lunch in Los Angeles, yeah. and you're like, oh, I have this idea, maybe I'm going to do sort of a syndicated network of blogs, right? Yep. And you went from like, a, it was a brainwave yeah. to selling it to AOL well, in 18 months. I had done the magazine for like seven years, and I got, when I sold it to Dow Jones, they gave me two years' salary. And then they fired me four weeks after they bought it. And I was like, what? You're firing me? And they're like, yeah, we think you should go on to your next day. It's like, I have a contract for two years. And like, and we're going to honor it. And I was like. Pay you out. And they literally paid it to me just to get me out of the building because I was so disruptive in the first four weeks I was there. And when Ted Leonsis and Jim Bankoff and those guys were like, we're going to buy your company. Here's the number. I was just like. Okay, and I talked to my fiance at the time, and now my wife Jade, and I was like, "This is it. I'm going to be able to be a millionaire." It's like I got what I wanted, and then that you know then leads to sort of like the existential. I had checked off the box also that I. How old are you at this point? Thirty what? Thirty one. Yeah, thirty two. You know, and okay. but I, I had the chance to sell Silicon Reporter for twenty million, twenty five million earlier to Meckler, Alan Meckler from Internet.com, uh, yeah. and I didn't take it. And so I was living with that regret when, you know, and it really put a fire in my stomach. I was just like sick over it. Like, God damn it. It would be like being in a poker game and you have like, you know, some incredible hand. You push all your chips in and the other person wins the hand, you know, on the last card. And you're just like, oh, I was supposed to win. And so that was good because it, it, in my mind, psychologically, I was like, I'm not a one trick pony. I didn't get just lucky. Uh, and then it was, then I was emboldened. Once you get that like chip stack and you're not fearful of running out of money, I kind of feel like as an entrepreneur you become dangerous. Mm-hmm. If you don't answer to anybody, mm-hmm. you can fund shit yourself. Mm-hmm. So I always like advise young founders if you can take a little bit off the table, which you can do now. You can do secondary offerings where you sell some of your shares. If you can take a little bit off, buy your house, buy your loft, whatever, put a little cheddar in the bank. It gives you a certain edge, you know, that we used to not have as founders when you're only, you had, it was very binary. Either you went IPO and, or sold your company or you lost everything. Right. And the secondary transaction thing, which people fought in our industry, um, has now become very standard. I, I have like five or six companies that we've invested in that were regularly offered opportunities at different dollar amounts to buy our shares. These buyers knows how, they know somehow how many shares we have. Sometimes they get you know, stolen copies essentially or forwarded copies of cap tables with names on it and they just start going rogue. Or other times it's a coordinated thing like Uber has done with their two secondary offerings. So it's really interesting how the industry has changed. Okay, but at the same time, I guess news is in your DNA because you haven't stopped trying to reinvent what news is, probably more than any other single person in the business, which is one of the things everyone sees you as this angel investor, but they don't see that you're consistently, you had Mahalo, now you have uh, Inside. Inside. Yeah. All right. Constantly tinkering. Yeah. So take us through that. What is driving that? Why are you trying so hard to reinvent this medium. I, I suppose it's that same thing when I was looking at those magazines and the mastheads. To me, I kind of feel like it's important. Not necessarily that I be important. I think actually you get more power from being able to write checks. Um, it's probably on par with being a publisher. Um, you know, being able to funding, being able to fund companies or to cover them. Either of those two things is very powerful. 
Um, but I just love it, and I think it's important. So I've been really studying like this fake news phenomenon and link baiting and all this stuff. I kind I find it kind of heartbreaking actually that journalism has kind of devolved so much um, and that there's so little resources to do good journalism. When you and I were in the industry, I was trying to explain this to a writer. I was like, do you know what? My peak, I got paid 3 or $4 per word. Yeah. And they're like, Wait, per piece? What, what, per, I was like, yes. per word. Per word. You would submit a thousand word articles and get back three or four thousand dollars. And this is in the 90s when our rent was one thousand. So you could submit an article that you worked on for two or three weeks and then you had enough money to live on for two months. And the people who were, you were at Wired, I think, for a bit. I, I would freelance do freelance work yeah. for Wired. Yeah, sure. The, the Condé Nast publications but, probably paid more. But also for um, uh, freelance, for uh, Salon, yep. was also doing the same thing. Feed. Feed, sure. For Steve Johnson. Yeah. It was the same. It was Stephen this, Berlin Johnson. <laughs> it was this beautiful era yeah. of getting paid well to do great work. And you, you weren't up against people rewriting your work or, you know, stealing it and... There was much less written, so the quality level was much higher. It was hard to get that gig. Mm. It was hard to get the gig, you know, at Condé Nast or Feed or whatever place. People were discerning, and, you know, people thought, should we write this story? And then you'd read it, and you're like, you know, we're going to kill this story. We're going to throw it away and start a new one. And people could work on something for a month or two. And that opportunity, with the exception of investigative journalism, is largely gone. You know, like you have John Carreyrou at the... Wall Street Journal, oh, you know, who, who just did Bad Blood, and I just had on my on my podcast. I mean, amazing journalist, Pulitzer Prize winning. And by the way, I don't know if you saw, but she got indicted today. Yeah, we're sitting here as Theranos has been indicted yes. um, for fraud Wisconsin. and wire Fired fraud. For, and yes, wire fraud. Wire fraud. I mean, it's like really bad. Uh, but I had yeah John Kerry thirty months ago, so you know, it, it still has this like super warm place in my heart. I think if I have another career, it's going to be either as a documentary filmmaker. Or I want to buy Frontline from PBS and make it a commercial venture mm-hmm. or something or a nonprofit. Like I like investigative journalism mm-hmm. a lot, and I like spending money to tell high-quality stories. So what about what uh, Pierre Omidar has done with The Intercept? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think the in- opinion-based journalism, like agenda-based, it feels very agenda-based. I know that that group has like very specific quixotic views of the world that Glenn Grunwald, Greenwald, Greenwald, Um, and he's got a very, like, very specific political thing. But the backstory, and I don't know if actually anybody knows this, was Glenn was trying to buy the Washington Post, and he thought he had a deal for it. This might be breaking news. People don't know this. And so his first deal was to get the Washington Post, and then Bezos stole it out from under him. This is like a real insider story. Um, And then after that, I think he was so soured that he did the intercept and said, I'm going to put $250 million into the intercept. You notice those two numbers were the same? Yeah. Jeff Bezos paid two fifty for the Washington Post. He outbid Pierre, and then Pierre said, I'm going to put two hundred fifty into the intercept. So I think it's interesting, but I, I, the one fear I have is when you take such an ax to grind, you lose credibility. So it feels like the intercept doesn't have massive credibility except with the people who believe in the deep state or Julian Assange, Russia. I don't even know what their agenda is now because... They do. They do break a lot of news that has that sort of foreign affairs edge to it, yeah. and sort of deep state edge. I agree with you. And you know that some of that's the tender of the times. Some of that's the fact that Greenwald is the leading journalist on there, and that's yeah. just been what he's done. But they are doing other sorts of things. But I agree with you. It's not clear that they're they've broken through, or if what their agenda is. Right. So, like, I think 
not having an agenda and just wanting to tell the story is probably preferable. I mean, I'm glad they're out there. But that's exactly what Inside is doing, right? I I get three different Inside uh, newsletters. So I get the crypto newsletter, I get the ARVR newsletter, and I get the main news, like the the daily. Yeah, Yeah, the the daily brief. The daily brief, exactly. The thing that Trump doesn't read. (laughs) (laughs) But But it's good because just scanning those three is like, I'm, I'm at You're least across. That was my like level one of inside was I just want to tell people the top 10 news stories ranked by importance, and I want to take out all the spin. So in other words, if you had somebody who is college educated and smart and knew the topic, if they just told you, here are the 10 important things that happened today, and here's my best, it's not going to be perfect, of course, it's subjective, but here's my best uh, shot at ranking the stories. And we actually put numbers into them in the last month. So we're now numbering them one through 10 in the newsletters. So you know when you're at the end. And I told people if there's like a a 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th is super important story for the day, of course you can put it in and just make a note that we went beyond 10. But then the next piece after that is doing, I think, really good feature kind of journalism that we talked about earlier. So once I get it to scale, then I'll do that. I'll turn over that next card, which is you'll get your top 10 and then below that, the feature article. The feature. So it's, it's below the fold, basically. Below the fold. And basically, you get through your top 10. Now you know you're up to speed with what happened in the world today. And now we go deep. So now that I've got the top 10 thing kind of nailed and figured out, we got a half million or more subscribers and a million dollars run rate in revenue. We just turned on revenue. So we started you know, adding some salespeople. Mm-hmm. See, you know, when you're figuring out startups, it's like a little bit of um, a mystery and you're, you're trying to figure out little pieces, piece by piece, solving different problems. So the first problem is, does anybody want to get a top 10 newsletter and do they value the unspinning of the news? Right. right. Like, and I can tell you as, as a loyal reader from the beginning, yeah. it suits me well because if I am interested in any of those, I, there's always links and I will always follow the link. Go deeper, so yeah. no matter what. There will always be at least, and I mean, I think the link traffic out for me from inside is probably higher than any other thing that I it's get. It's pretty crazy. You'd be amazed. Um, well, that's why you have all that click. data. We do, yeah. It's actually something we're thinking about is like, what do we do with that data? So since we know you're, we're actually recording well, it. Well, it's a heat map yeah. of what people are finding interesting. Right? So what we want to do is eventually say, you know what? Our people are keep clicking on Oculus stuff. Oculus is breaking out. So maybe we'll do inside.com slash Oculus. And we'll just do a newsletter just on the Oculus. Now, does that have 10 stories a day? Not yet, but maybe in another two years it will. But the VR one didn't have 10 stories a day when you started it two years ago. No, it had four or five, yeah. And now, what I I, it's so interesting. I had a conversation with the editorial team today, and I was like, if you ever get to a point where we don't have 10 good ones and you get to seven, just write. We couldn't find eight, nine, and 10 stories that we thought were worth it. And just be honest with the audience. They'll appreciate it, yeah. right? So it's good to have an editorial format. It's also good to stray from it. So I'm, I'm still grinding it out on that one, and I could have sold it by now, but it's just too interesting to me to stop. And I kind of feel like we have 30 newsletters right now. At any point, I can hit the throttle and go to 300. Any point, I could go because uh, I have the money. I have the format, and I've almost got the sales team. So when I get the sales team to 10 or 15 people, but do you have, do you have the, the Do you have those other 270 domains identified? Yeah, I have the other. It, it's pretty, one of the things we decided to do was the hardest part of launching a newsletter is getting the first 1,000 people who care. It's sort of like Kevin Kelly's, yeah. what does he call it, your thousand, true thousand, believers? 1,000 perfect fans, yeah. Yeah, exactly. the perfect fans. So what we decided to do was we put on the website, here are our current newsletters, here are newsletters we're thinking about. Mm-hmm. And you can vote by subscribing. And if it hits 2,000 or 3,000, then we'll start the newsletter. So we took out the, 
you know, what would be $25,000 in cost to acquire the first 2,500 people or 5,000 people, you'd probably have to spend, you know, five, $10 to acquire each email. So that's like our slow burning thing. But I think every city in the world, every profession in the world, and then every major topic, um, and even the major companies could have a newsletter. So we're experimenting with a lot of pieces. We're talking to Jason Calacanis. We will be right back on This Week in Startups Australia. MYOB saves businesses time, helps improve cash flow, gets invoices paid faster, gives real-time visibility of profit and loss, and makes payroll easy. With MYOB, you can create, send, and track customized invoices. People who use MYOB get paid four times faster. Your clients can pay you directly from your invoices. That's awesome because Australian businesses can wait on average 43 days to get paid. MYOB will let you know when you've been paid, then update the accounts. MYOB makes pay runs quick and easy, ensuring all your tax and super payments are compliant with the Australian tax office. 1.2 million businesses in Australia and New Zealand use MYOB. Startups, sole traders, small businesses, all the way up to companies with hundreds of staff. Whatever your stage or size, MYOB has a solution for you. Twista listeners get a free 30-day trial. And the first 50 people to sign up will also get $100 cash. Go to myob.com twista for your free trial today. And we're back talking to Jason Calacanis. It was going to sort of be a talk about your history, but it's yeah. actually also really talk about your present work as an entrepreneur. Yep. But I actually want to shift the focus of the discussion because you're also known, in, I think, affectionately as the king of the angels these days yeah. because of placements you've made most notoriously in Uber. Yeah. But you've become very much a fixture in investing, particularly in early stage companies. Mm-hmm. You have seen this market evolve from something that was very immature just a decade ago to something that is now very sophisticated and very mature. Do you want to sort of talk about that? Sure. Um, So about eight, nine years ago, my friend at Sequoia Capital, Rulof Botha, uh, said to me, he's a South African, um, and he was on the board of Mahalo, which is now inside, and he said, um, I have this idea. Uh, I want to start the Sequoia Scouts thing. I want you to be the first scout. If we gave you some money, would you invest it in interesting companies that you meet? And I was like, well, isn't that your job? And he said, yeah, but we could only meet so many companies, and you have your feet on the ground, and you're going to meet people uh, early, and I'll just give you some money, and you make investments, and we'll split the returns 50-50. And I said, don't you get paid like 30% carry? He's like, yeah, but this will probably never amount to anything. It's just small dollar amounts. I mean, it could, but and sure enough, it's now like probably the highest perf- – that fund of the first 20 – Angel, first 20, I think it was 12 scouts in that fund, and maybe we did 20 or 30 investments. But Sam Altman, who now runs Y Combinator, was a Sequoia, Sequoia scout, and I was a scout. He did Stripe, and I think that position's worth 50 million or so, 25, 50 million. And then I did Uber famously, which is north of a $100 million position. So this is a pretty big win for all of us. Uh, but at the time, what people don't know is in my first 
I think my first six investments were included Uber, Thumbtack, and Datasac. So I hit three unicorns in my first six times up at bat. To give people an idea about what that's like statistically, most venture capitalists never hit a unicorn in their career. Um, so it would be the equivalent of getting up to in baseball and hitting three home runs in your first six times up at bat, or hitting, or getting a royal flush in getting a royal flush three rows in uh, yeah times three in times a in a row right exactly yeah. winning the World Series three out of the first six times you played it in poker whatever it is um, and part of that is luck you know I had known Travis for years covering him as a journalist and we became friends so I happen to have a crazy network and a lot of friendship and I also have a very Deep-seated, risk-taking, gambling, brain chemistry. I think. Well, but I think we've, I think we've sort of seen that when you feel like there's something that you want to work toward. I don't, I don't know. If, uh, let me reframe the risk-taking as I think relentless. Yeah, and I'm I think a maybe maniacal. on the outside, yeah. outside they might look the same, but I think there's yeah. a relentlessness to you. I, there, there kind of is, and I, you know, it's interesting. As I get older, I don't know if I have that same relentlessness. I wonder if it's going to go away, and then it comes back. So it gets selective as you get older. Well, yeah, because you're like, you know what? I don't need to do this. So I'm going to really focus my energies. And so long story short, I thought angel investing was dumb. And then I started doing it. And then I kind of enjoyed it because it's a real rush to sit with your friends and people who just are entrepreneurs. And they say, here's where the world's going. And you're like, well, why? And then they explain it to you. And you, an immature uh, investor will try to figure out if that's actually the case. I no longer try to figure out if they're right or not. I just figure out, do they really deeply care about the problem they're trying to solve and, or the product they're trying to build? And if they really deeply care, well, nobody knows what's going to work or not, so I might as well suspend disbelief. So if I figure out you're super passionate about this and you have skills, then it's a kind of an easier bet to make. Now, I meet a lot of people who are spastically passionate but have, have no, no skill. skill. And, you know, it's kind of like an idiot running into, you know, running up on stage and grabbing the guitar from some great guitarist and being like, I can do this too. And then they, okay, go ahead, show us. And then they just hit the strings on the guitar and it, it's painful. So you have to have skill. Um, and after about 100 or 100, 150 investments, I realized, you know what? I think I'm one of the best people in the industry at this. And it was kind of confirmed by the track record. And I was talking to my book agent, John Brockman, who does Edge.org, and I had, been, had him as an agent for 10 years and never wrote a book. Mm -hmm. And all the book offers I got were like, blogging for dummies, you're the yeah. master of blogs, or uh, you should do podcasting for dummies, or you should do, you know, whatever it is. And I was like, am I supposed to take a message from the fact that I've been offered to do three dummies books? Like, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm kind of trying to get that, I'm kind of getting the message. Anyway, I was talking to Brockman, and then somebody had leaked the returns of the Sequoia Fund. And a journalist at the Wall Street Journal printed them, and they printed how much my Uber shares were worth. Right. And it was nine figures, and, ever, and it was on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. And uh, my agent wrote back, and was like, I think this is your book. And I was like, okay. And he said, write two pages. I wrote two pages. And then there was an auction. And there were so many people who wanted – 25 publishers wanted to meet with me. Yeah. He let me meet with the top, like, seven or eight – and then HarperCollins Business, which is like the venerable, you know, business publisher, been around for hundreds of years, you know, picked it up and I wrote the book. And the book now has really catalyzed what I'm doing. I didn't realize books were so powerful. 
They're, I mean, if you it, write a good one, I think they're powerful. <laughs> they're, they're powerful, and they're powerful. Not, it's not. It's different from branding, and yet it's still branding. I don't quite yes. know how to explain it, but yes. Yeah, you know, people told me when I was writing the book, like, you'll, you'll get a lot of speaking gigs and all this stuff. I had no idea. Yeah. People, if you have a book, are like, yeah, come speak at this thing. Like, people regularly are like, we'll give you thirty thousand dollars and fly you out first class to go speak somewhere. And I don't have the time to do this kind of stuff anymore, um, and it detracts from working on inside and investments, but. The interesting thing that happened along the way was this syndicate movement, um, which is fascinating. So AngelList, really, Naval over there gets, uh, Ravikant gets credit for this. He, he realized, and there are people doing SPVs yeah. before AngelList, before they were actually called syndicates. They, and I'm not sure if Naval named them syndicates or he just codified that name, but he gets all the credit because he realized there were people out there that could lead syndicates who weren't uh, venture capitalists and weren't rich. And he created a framework for that, and he taught me how to do it. And so I'll be forever grateful for him and Angelus for doing that. Um, now, we're not on Angelus anymore. We do it at jasonsyndicate.com, but that's because we're kind of big, and it's you know uh, more economical for me to do it there than pay for his team. So there's, there's sort of two things that are going on here. One is you sort of working all of this to bring a funnel of companies in yeah. that you can take a look at to see whether you want to fund. How does uh, – go through some of your own process, and we always ask inve- investors, how do you know yeah. whether you want to make the call? And you've already said you identify someone who's passionate but also capable, right? Those yeah. are the two things. Are sure. there other things that you're looking Resiliency. for? Resiliency. Like the reason most of these companies fail is not because they run out of money or they don't have product market fit. It's usually because the founder quits mm-hmm. or it's universally because the founder quits. If the founder doesn't quit and they don't have product market fit and they run out of money, they can keep working on it. Right. And I see founders do that often, uh, not as often as I'd like. But uh, So I look for resiliency. I look for skills. And I look for somebody uh, who's passionate about seeing the world change uh, through their lens of their startup. Um, and, and that's... That's really the uh, the easiest thing to do is to not overthink it. You know, the times I've overthought it and tried to think if I could see this working in the world were two of my biggest misses ever, which is Zynga and Twitter. And I'm friends with the founders of both those companies and I had the inside line and that could have been another, you know, $25, 50000000 million hit for me. And I just thought Twitter was stupid. You know, even though I used it. Yeah, I was going to say, it is, we both use it a lot. I know, we're both addicted to it, and we both think it's stupid. And we both (laughs) delete it from our phones and then eventually put it back on. It's literally, we have like Twitter derangement syndrome. Uh, Yes. And so I guess it would be like investing in Oxycontin. You know, like you shouldn't, but you know it's also very powerful (laughs) and it's going to make a shit ton of money. But I, you know, I would feel like I would be torn. (laughs) But, um, the syndicate thing is kind of interesting because now I can email. When I left AngelList, I had 900 members, and I think the biggest syndicate we ever did was maybe four or five hundred thousand dollars. Then I wrote the book, and it went from we left AngelList. I added about 100 or 200 people. Then the book came out, and we went from 1,100 people to 2,400 or 2,500 members of the syndicate. And so now I write a deal memo. What's the wealth spread? There's 2,500 members, and presumably there are people who don't have a lot of money, and there are people who have a lot of money. They have to be accredited. So it's only accredited in my syndicate right now. Okay, which means in America? uh, In America, it is 200,000 a year, I believe, for two years, and a million dollars in net worth outside of the cost of your home. Right. And 
Australia. It's two fifty and two point five million. Two point five million. Yeah. And I don't know if your price of your home is included in that or not. Uh, but similar. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I think will change over time. Um, as I tell people, like poor people or non-sophisticated, which is super insulting, can go play poker or blackjack and yeah. blow all their money, but yeah. they can't invest in LinkedIn if they were a recruiter or an HR person who were early on LinkedIn, or you were an Uber driver yeah. and you're like, I want to invest and I drive Uber every day or an Airbnb host, those people should invest because yes. they have an inside insight that other people don't have. They have an, a, a real edge from they using also the have, They also have a stake in the business's success. They're stakeholders and the stakeholders should be allowed to be shareholders. So I think what will happen, and this is something I brought up in a lot of the interviews I'm doing while I'm down here in Sydney is, they're like, what can the government do? And I said, well, the, what the government could really do to help this is change sophisticated from being based upon your the money you have to the knowledge you have. So if we really want to be intellectually honest, why not have a, a test like a driver's license test? Well, okay, so there's an organization called the Australian Institute of Company Directors, AICD. Okay. Almost everyone who sits on a board in this country because... Being a board member in Australia carries a number of financial responsibilities that it does not in America. You are really? on the hook for losses as a director in, in Australia. What? Yes. Wow. There, so, and, and so we really like people to have accreditation. And so not all of the directors on Australian companies are accredited, but most of them have gone through the training program and are accredited by this. So they take it seriously. They take it well. You have to take it seriously. Because you could wind up paying for... The bankruptcy yourself. Yes, that is That's correct. Crazy. That yeah. is correct. So they must be well compensated as well to deal with that. Yes. Um, well, if, it, if it's a big public company, but there's yeah. a lot of nonprofit work as well. Yeah. But you have to keep your eye on that ball. Yeah. And but you could easily see something similar being set up yeah. with a peak body, and it wouldn't even have to be the government, but just someone that was delegated by the government as being a peak body. You take yeah. this course, then you could do literally. That. You know, you can drive a car yeah. 65 miles an hour down the highway. But you can't put a $500 into LinkedIn or Uber. I mean, it seems crazy, right? Like one of them is super dangerous. One isn't. All right. We've come to Australia. Yeah. You have to know, the last time you were here was Ten like... Ten years ago. So, yeah. So, See, 2008. Right. So, 2008. It is like night and day. It's incredible. In the last 10 years. All there, right. there are startups. It, exactly. It was like hot dog software and nothing else. It feels like... Remember that? Hot Dog Software was making like this... Uh, video HT games, right? Yeah. And, well, no, they had HTML editor. They were making oh. a hot dog HTML editor. Well, and there was a tiny little company that you wouldn't have seen called Atlassian. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but, it, but it was a tiny... It was only probably 50 employees at that point. Uh, so we've now got an actual startup ecosystem. Atlassian has created two multi-billionaires in uh, Scott and Mike. Yeah. And also there's a whole subtranche underneath them that are all worth tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. So there's a lot of money floating in around the ecosystem now. We're sitting and doing this interview in Winyard Green, which is this enormous facility that the state government has been providing. It's impressive. For startup space. What do we need to do to go from good to great? This is the question yeah. I'm going to ask all of the guests in season yeah. six. So you get the first bat. Sure. Um, it's super important that the people who win give back. Mm -hmm. So to the extent the Atlassian founders are still interested in startups and technology. And oh, and they, are, and they have family offices and their yeah. funding and all of that. So, so to get in there and say, you know what, I'm going to mentor and invest in companies. They have so much credibility and they have so much knowledge and so such big networks that they could go to the next Atlassian and say, 
listen, here are the three things that could take your startup off the rails, and here are the two or three things that could make it go supernova, and here's a little bit of, you know, here's a $100,000 investment to get you started, or 25000 whatever it is. So you really want to see that flywheel get going. You also want to get people off the sidelines who have nothing to do with tech, but also but who have money. Right. So there are... I'm assuming millions of sophisticated investors in this country. So the the the, the canonical example is what we call so Torque is a very nice Melbourne suburb. It's a Torque dentist. Yeah. All right. And Perfect. they have huge and they have well, because we have superannuation, which is like a four hundred one K, but it's mandatory in this mm. country. And if you work for yourself, you have self managed super quite often. So you have mm. a large pile of money which, if you're a sophisticated investor, can be several or many millions of dollars yeah. that you have to invest until you're 65. And so why not put 5% of that or 10% of that into a highly volatile, risky asset class? That could change your life forever. And that's what I tried to explain in the book, which is, you know, if you put 5 or 10% uh, as an affluent person into angel investing, you want to do it wisely. You want to go slow. You want to learn. But this yeah. is the whole point with a syndicate is that you're... you're you can. You can put in $5,000 a deal, not fifty. But you're also marrying your money with knowledge. Yeah, you get to be part of a group of people who are vetting the deals and hopefully a syndicate lead like myself who's got some experience and track record and who is putting their own money in. So when people see me investing, it's like, well, Jason's investing. He's not an idiot. He may be a little bit of a crazy risk taker, but it's kind of what you want as a syndicate lead, to be honest. And if you can get more of those people into the industry and train them on how to do this, that could be super accretive. So uh, we're doing, uh, ahead of Launch Festival Sydney, um, on Monday we're doing a half-day Angel University, and we have 40 people coming to it. So we actually made Angel.University to help train people and we say, here's everything we learned, and here's how dilution works in convertible notes, and here's how to meet with the founder and what to do in the meeting, and here's what pro rata means, and should you take your pro rata or go super pro rata or pass. And so this is going to be a room full of Australians getting a crash course. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. Um, and I think you know the reason we have a multi-year deal with New South Wales is you know, we, we're going to sort of plant our flag this year, have 500 people at the event, Three to five hundred is the goal, and then you know double it every year for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and so we want to be part of that. Um, and getting those people involved, trust me, they'll get hooked. So an example of that is um, Matthew Delavidova mm-hmm. is a basketball player mm-hmm. from outside of Melbourne, and he was injured. And I have another friend, Andrew Bogut. These are both NBA players. Wait, in the US. you know Andrew Bogut? Good friend of mine. Um, play he's, cards together. He's extremely well known here. Yeah, so he's a very good friend of mine. Uh, we text daily or right. every other day. Right. Anyway, Deli, who's friends with Bogues, um, read my book, and because he followed me on social media, he had like a little bit of an interest in it. He plays uh, for the Bucks in the U.S. and he started emailing me, and so I started inviting him to come out to my incubator and he's made about i don't know five or ten investments Mm -hmm. and he'll be speaking at launch festival actually he'll be on the angel panel talking about it and he wrote a blog post about it and that's the kind of thing that i was trying to do with the book was say you know maybe somebody who's got an mba contract which makes them a decent amount of money or you know they're a dentist or whatever here's a roadmap for you to get into it Mm -hmm. and for you not to lose your shirt by investing in your cousins friends you know business and giving them two hundred fifty thousand dollars like Pump the brakes, make ten investments at two or three thousand dollars, then make ten investments at five or ten thousand dollars, and then look at the twenty and say which two have objectively done the best, have follow on financing, have revenue, and then go ten X or five X on those. Mm-hmm. And now you're in the game intelligently. Mm-hmm. And just that little 
technique that I told you right now and that's in the book is enough for you to actually become or have a much greater chance of becoming a net positive investor. Okay, before we close, yeah. I'm gonna wind you up a little bit. Oh, here we go. Yeah, but but it, this because this is I think this is a really interesting point because the one thing that has changed in the angel universe in the last eighteen months yeah. are ICOs. Yeah. Where where a startup can basically manufacture its own currency out of thin air yeah. and sell it to people without giving away any of their stock yeah. and raise funny. Now, and that's, this is where, so Power Ledger, which is a very well-respected startup in Perth, raised $37 million basically by selling tokens yeah. that get used to trade energy in their system. Yep. A lot of other companies are doing this. How is this going to affect the angel universe going forward? Great question. So... Let's start with just what's happening in that crypto space, leaving aside the competition it could, that investors could face. Um, the people who are investing in these ICOs tend to be crypto uh, millionaires who have made a ton of money already. And they're basically saying, I own a lot of Bitcoin and, and or Ethereum. How can I diversify? Let me put it into some of these other projects. It's also showing that there's massive pent up demand on a global basis for people to invest in startups. Um, right, who they don't aren't have sophisticated investors. They're, these are, not, these are by yeah. definition, not sophisticated. Yep. <laughs> um, yep. Because they're sending money to people they've never met yes. to build companies that are fantastical, which is fine. But only exist on a white paper. But only exist in a document made in Word that may or may not have been written by the founders. It will end in tears. Of the ICOs out there, that I've looked at, nine out of 10 are completely, utterly absurd and will never work. Now, when I meet with businesses, I'd say half of them are. So this is twice as fantastical. But the right. thing that's different about what I do as an angel investor and what these ICOs are doing and these ICO investors is I meet with the companies and I vet them and I talk to their customers and I do something called diligence. And I can diligence because the products exist and the customers exist. So if you invest in these 90, 95 out of 100 will probably never launch. Compare that to angel investing where, as an angel investor, you can say, I'm only going to invest in launched products. Right. Now you've eliminated 90% of the risk. So you're going to take on 10 times the risk by investing in ICOs. Mm. So for founders who want to take advantage of this, fine. Raise the 30 or 40 or $50 million. However, understand that at least in the United States, most people have done these illegally. And the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States, is now investigating them. People are going to jail. And people are saying this is a securities. Um, these are securities, not utilities, which is a technical concept. Like utility right. Although I think, I think the SEC announced just yesterday that Ethereum was not a security. Which, which is, is interesting. Completely ridiculous, but okay, sure. Yeah. I mean, people who bought it, bought it to see it appreciate. They didn't buy it for the utility, and they'll never use the utility. Yeah. So I think that's a bunch of rich people, you know, who lobbied the SEC <laughs> and tried to get a – you know, and, and I think practically, I don't know how you unravel these ICOs. So I think all the brakes have been pumped now, and to unravel Ethereum would or any other ICO would require – the person who issued it to say, I did this illegally, at least in the United States. And would, oh, and you, like your, and would you like your money back? Yeah. And then what could happen is the people could say, the people could just not respond. And then if you make the money, they could take the profit. And if you lose their money, they could sue you. So you're giving them this like crazy put option or whatever to like pick whichever choice they want. 
Um, if it becomes um, more organized and it gets the blessing of the SEC and other regulatory bodies, I'm all for it. If people are, because remember before I said we should just have like some level of sophistication. Yeah. So I'm not opposed to it. I mean, listen, I have a fund and I have a syndicate, which is essentially people yeah. are buying shares or have ownership in it. So tokenizing it, we'll tokenize all of our stuff when when it's appropriate. When it's when yeah, there's a company that my friend David Sachs is a big investor in called Harbor, which is just yeah. doing all the compliance work. Yeah. So when Harbor's ready. I'll tokenize my next fund, sure. And if you're an LP, or hopefully you'll be a GP in it, you'll be a partner in it, you could then um, say, you know what, I'm going to sell some shares. And somebody else can buy them, and we'll just transfer the tokens. And that would be good for me, because I could have in the smart contract, if my LPs want to sell it, I get 10% of yeah. a transaction fee. for carry. Yeah, or I could just say, I'm going to take a fee if you transfer your shares, yeah. a modest one, or I get first right of refusal on it. So you could say, you know, LPA wants to sell to LPZ, who Z, you know, do you say Z or Z? In our we say Z here. Yeah, so I want to sell to Z, and I, but Z has six day, seven days he has to wait for me to decide if I want to buy them first. So if I don't respond in seven days, Zed gets to buy them. So I mean, the upshot here is that it's not going to be angels versus crypto. It's going to be how do the angels use the crypto? It's a, it, You know as well as anybody. I mean, you know better than everybody. It, it's a it's a tool. Once the dust settles and all the fraud is out of it, just like Web 1.0 yeah. is filled with fraud. Yeah. Once the fraud dust settles, then people will go in, and the actual technology will be deployed intelligently without fraud. So we have to wait for crypto 2.0, basically. I think it's starting to happen. I mean, you, you, I think Harbor and some of these other companies that are coming in and saying we're we're just going to do compliance first, yeah. and anything we do, we issue is going to be compliance based, even. Um, I think CoinList, which is an offshoot of AngelList, Naval I mentioned earlier, I think that they're being very careful. CoinList, a uh, Coinbase, which is the big, you know. Well, the thing is, you, they're, they're all being very considered now. If you want to do any business with a large bank or any large financial institution, yeah. you have to be considered because otherwise the SEC goes after them and you. Yeah, I, I, yeah my, my gut right now is that Bitcoin Zero is a real possibility. Um, and I've been saying that since it hit 19 or 20, whatever it hit, I was like, the first technology often implodes and becomes like the training grounds of the technology that actually becomes the technology, right? Like the one that actually becomes lasting. So I have a feeling, you know, Bitcoin might implode or um, just slowly trail off to $1,000 a coin or or just go sideways and be six to 10000 a coin forever. But something will come after it. And maybe maybe it's Ethereum or maybe it's the next thing. Um, and that will be the thing. But the, deve- the fact that developers are obsessed with this, that to me is more important than, oh, our VC is going to be disintermediated. Trust me, I'm not being disintermediated. People want the knowledge we have. They want our money. They want our skills. Um, but and, and the second this becomes legal, you can be sure I'll be doing it, and I'll be doing it with my credibility and my chip stack, so it'll be easy for me to compete against anybody else. You know, like I mean, let's be realistic here. So just like, you know, of course, Disney was late to the party with, you know, streaming movies or whatever. But you can be sure that Disney's Netflix is going to catch up very quickly to Netflix. Like, it's obvious. They own Star Wars and Disney and Pixar. Like, they're going to be okay. And Marvel. And Marvel. Like, I think they're going to be okay. They may be late, but they'll be okay. Yeah, but again, 
A fast follower, if you have sufficient resources, is an absolutely fine place to be. Jason, it has been an amazing conversation. We could do this for days, the entirety of Series 6, but we really do have to draw this to a close. Thank you very much for being our first guest on Series 6. And I want to just say thank you to you for being such a good friend to me over the years and a tireless supporter. You know, I know getting on a plane and coming out to America to support me in those early years of Launch Festival is very meaningful to me. And also doing this. Like, I... I really wanted to have another country do this week in startups, and I, I don't trust anybody with my brand, but like you and Tyler and some other people, and I would really like to see us do like, now that you've had such great success doing it, and thank you to the sponsors, you know, to pay for keeping the lights on here at This Week in Startups, Australia, Twista. I would like to see a Twist, you know, China maybe, or Twist Japan, or Twist EU or something like this. Other startup hubs, it would be very cool if we got a collection of these going um, and people could hear about all these different startup hubs. To your final point, you were asking me about what could startups do. One message to entrepreneurs uh, here is to, to really don't underestimate yourselves. Don't think for a minute that being here makes you any less of a founder than anywhere else. Great founders can come from anywhere and so I do see a little bit of caution from some of the entrepreneurs here. I don't want to say meekness, but you have to be bold. And don't be afraid to ask for the money. Don't be, in it, be afraid to have a big, huge vision because you can change the world. You see Canva and Atlassian having these huge valuations and printing money. You can do that, and you can do 10 times that. There's no reason that the next Facebook, Uber, Thumbtack, Robinhood, whatever, will not come here. Uh, Google, Tesla... It can happen here. You just have to have skills and a big vision and be relentless. The University of Technology, Sydney, empowers students to become entrepreneurs by offering student startup programs credit-bearing subjects, and real industry opportunities. I know the folks running the entrepreneurship program. They're committed, they're focused, and they're some of the best talent this country has to offer. The program they're building is where you'll learn the core skills to be the best possible startup entrepreneur. UTS, creating the entrepreneurs of the future. Email entrepreneurship at uts.edu.au to get involved. I've known Jason Calacanis for 23 years and something that he said to me probably 20 years ago really struck me. He said that He wanted to study the smartest people he knew. And one of the reasons he was working in technology was because he was always meeting people smarter than him. He was learning everything he could from them to make him smarter. And it seems to have worked because his career arc, from publishing a newsletter to being the biggest angel investor in the world, has been amazing. And it's been a lot of hard work, a lot of hard yards, more than a bit of luck. But in a lot of ways, fortune favors the prepared. I think now that Australia is prepared, it's time for us to see if we can turn that preparation 
into a run of luck. Big thanks to Twista sponsors MYOB and UTS. Their support makes this podcast possible. Thanks to the studio at Wynyard Green for providing the amazing facility where we record this week in Startups Australia. It's the place for creative tech. Find out more at thestudio.org.au. Thanks again to Jason for making the time to come on our show. Now, we've rebuilt and relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, it's got all the interviews, it's got all the photos, it's got all the links and all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back in a fortnight, gazing into the future of Australia's creative technology industries with the studio's managing director, Chantal Abishar. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.